There's that QR code if you need it. Hope in persecution is what we're talking about today. We're in Revelation 2, 8 through 11 as our text. And we want to fi- find out where to find hope in persecution. Persecution is fairly foreign to us as Americans. We are a majority within our country of Christ- that as Christian over about 60-ish percent. So we don't really know what this is like. We have very mild persecution. But we may have persecution someday, and we all have affliction in one form or another, right? Whether it's your back or health or a relationship, we all have affliction. A sin, a thought process, life is full of affliction. In 2022, an advocacy group, Open Doors, said that at least 360 million, sobering, that's a big number, 360 million Christians experience high levels of persecution and discrimination across the world. In fact, Christianity is the most persecuted faith of all. That 360 million Christians is up 20 million higher than 2021. That's another big number, not obviously as big as 360 million, but 20 million, I believe, I haven't checked my numbers lately, but I believe that's bigger than Chicago, the population of Chicago. I think Chicago's population is right around 10 million, I think. I'd have to recheck that fact, but if I remember correctly, the surrounding Chicago area is like 10 million people. Just to try to put that in, like, perspective. Our brothers and sisters are being persecuted every single day for what they believe. And now, we do have some afflictions of our own, but it's not like them, but it's not a comparison game. But the truth of what, where to find hope is the same. So where is hope in the midst of your affliction, in the midst of your tribulation, in the midst of the trial that you're going through? And how do we process our own trials? Part of finding hope is how we process. (laughs) If our attitude is why, this is wrong, this isn't right, God doesn't love me, are we going to find hope? God's abandoned me. If that's our thought process, if that's what we're doing, we are not going to find hope because we're acting like spoiled brats. There is hope. But we have to see the affliction, the struggle through the lens of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. 
Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And the angel in the, the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, the, who died and came to life. First and last, died and came to life. This is our Jesus. Church in Smyrna. It's modern day Izmir in Turkey. North of Ephesus. A wealthy poor city. And it's devoted to many gods, but especially to the emperors of Rome as gods. Okay? So much so, actually most of Turkey, the imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of city and often even village life in Asia Minor so that individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. Now you have to understand the Jews had dispensation. They didn't have to do this because they were recognized as a religion in the Roman Hierarchy. So they understood, hey, you have exemption because your religion doesn't let you do this. So do you, and, and the Christians in the beginning, they were a sect of Jews, right? So if you could continue to label as Jew who believes in Messiah, we call those Messianic Jews today, right? Then that would be a good thing for you, right? Or if you were a Gentile and you got believed in Jesus, you want to say, yeah, I'm that sect of Jew that believes in the Messiah, okay? Citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by local law to sacrifice to the emperor on various special occasions. And sometimes even visitors and foreigners were invited to do so. Sacrifice to a man as a god. Christians have a problem with that, just so you know. I mean... So Polycarp, the disciple of John the Apostle, the pastor of Smyrna. Polycarp is the pastor of the church that Jesus is writing this letter to. The pastor at Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is the only church that Jesus does not reprove or say, I have this against you. Smyrna is doing well as a church. Now, Polycarp's martyrdom is recorded by the church of Smyrna and sent to another uh, church in Asia Minor. And, it, and this account is written in like one, eight, 165 A.D. So if you go with the uh, late writing of Revelation, which is 90 A.D., it's written 75 years after Revelation was written. It's the account of Polycarp's martyrdom. I'm going to read experts. From that, Polycarp was running, going from, in the text, village to village, trying to avoid being captured. And they pursue him, and they capture him by capturing a young farm boy and forcing him to tell of Polycarp's location. And they threatened to kill the boy, and Polycarp said, no, I'll come out. And so he's captured, and he's brought into the stadium, into the Colosseum. 
And he's in the middle, and he's having this conversation with the judge, the proconsul. Finally, when he was brought forward, the proconsul asked Polycarp if he, if he were Polycarp. When he admitted it, he tried to persuade him to deny the faith, saying, you ha have regard for your age and other suggestions such as they usually make. Swear by the genius of Caesar or the honor of Caesar. Change your mind and say, away with the atheists. They called Christians atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods. They only believed in one God. Then Polycarp with solemn countenance gazed on the whole crowd of lawless pagans in the stadium, waved his hands and groaned and looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. As proconsul urged him and said, take the oath, I release you, revile Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Skipping ahead, they want the crowds goes wild and wants Polycarp thrown to the beast to be torn apart. But that part of the entertainment, yes, entertainment, was already done. And so the proconsul would not do it. So then they started to cry out, burn him at the stake. And they went to the stake and they put it, were going to put his hands above him, crossed over, and nail him to the stake. And he said, do not nail me, before the, the Lord will empower me to stand and so they bound his hands behind his back like a ram marked to, for sacrifice out of a great flock. A holocaust prepared and acceptable to God. And he looked up to heaven and he said, Lord Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus, through whom we have received knowledge of thee, God of angels and powers of the whole creation, of the whole race of righteous who live in thy sight, I bless thee for having me made me worthy of this day and hour. I bless thee because I may have part, along with the martyrs, in the chalice of your Christ, Messiah, unto the resurrection in eternal life. Resurrection both of soul and body in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received today as rich and acceptable sacrifice among those who are in your presence as thou hast prepared and foretold and fulfilled great who art faithful and true. For this and for all benefits, I praise thee. I bless thee, I glorify thee through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved son, through whom be to thee, with him and the Holy Spirit, glory now and for all ages to come. Amen. And they lit the fire. And Polycarp was not born. 
so they stabbed him. And Polycarp went to glory. They having fun? Good. You're not? I'm sorry. Romans, I mean, Revelation 2.8. The words of the first and last who died and came to life. The words of the first and last. Whose words are they? They're Jesus' words spoken by the Spirit. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, the first and the last, Yahweh embodied. There is nothing behind, beyond him. He is the first and the last. No trial or poverty, nothing. Nothing is beyond him. Amen? Your trial, it's not behind him. Your, your, your physical need, your, your poverty, it's not beyond him. Jesus, he died. And he came to life. It's resurrection power in our bones by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen? That's good news. And you've been sealed by that same spirit who is working in you, God's good pleasure, through the affliction, through the trial that you stand in today. And all of us stand in one form of trial or another. Right? And I want you to know today there is hope because God is working in your trial. God is working in your trial. It hasn't come upon you by happenstance. It is a trial that God has brought to you to show, shape and form you into the image of his son to prepare you for an eternity in a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus. And he knows you and he is with you. A great song by Jeremy Camp, I can walk down this dark and painful road. I can face every fear of the unknown. I can hear all God's children singing out, we will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power, the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, who commands the dead to wake, lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks. The same power that can calm a raging sea lives in us, church. Lives in us. He lives in us. You got it? Lives in us. Where does he live? And whose power is working in you? Is it yours? No. Spirit power. 
He is changing you. He has sealed you. He is working for your good. Resurrection power. The f- he had died, but now he is alive. And he brings that same life to you and to me. Verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. I know, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. The Jews, when Jesus was in ministry, called Jesus doing the works of Beelzebub, of the house of Satan, if you do the word etymology on that word. And so that theme of calling them of the devil is going on, and, and, and John is flipping that. This isn't anti-Semitism. Uh, John's a Jew, okay? Jesus is a Jew. Calling them of the synagogue of Satan is not anti-Semitism, though some people have turned it to that and misused that, okay? But it is their act that they are doing. But that gets me distracted because that's at the end of the verse. I want you to know, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows you. Say with me, Jesus knows me. Jesus knows me. He knows you. He knows your affliction. He knows your affliction, your tribulation, your trial, your test. He knows it. Do you know that? And he's with you in it. He knows it. He knows your poverty. He knows your need. He knows it. He knows it. It's not beyond him. He's walking in it. He's walking through it. While you wait, worship. While you wait, trust. He's made you rich in faith. Rich in faith. He knows you've been slandered. Ever been slandered? I've been slandered. Slandering is when somebody says something bad about you that is not true. Been called a liar, and I haven't lied. Been slandered. You've been slandered? He knows you've been slandered. He knows it. You see, the Jews, they're slandering Jewish and Gentile Christians. They're they're saying things about them that are not true, like they eat the body of Christ, (laughs) that they're cannibals. They're saying that because they come together and they have the love of the brotherhood, that they come together and have orgies. (laughs) They're slandering them. They're calling them atheists because they don't believe, not the Jews, but pagans, they're calling them atheists. 
because they don't believe in the God or don't worship the God. So the Jews are slandering. In about AD 90, the cross of Minim was introduced into the 18 benedictions. These 18 benedictions were what would be read on Sabbath, a prayer. Every Sabbath, the Jews would read the, these 18 benedictions. And the cross of Minim was added to these 18 benedictions. This provided a means of de detecting Christians in the synagogue. So no longer now being a sect of Jews, it's saying, no, they're not of us. The pressure of the emperor court explains why these Christians sought acceptance within the Jewish faith. So here is the added line to the benediction. Nazarenes refer to the Christians. May the Nazarenes and the Minim suddenly perish. And may they be blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled along with the righteous. Now, if you were a Christian and you were in a group, you would not want to say that, right? All this about slandering, I want us to remember this as a church and as a body. When one slanders, when you slander somebody, you, he or she, aligns with Satan. You align with the liar and the accuser. So don't slander. I know sometimes we do. If you do, confess it. Cease and desist. Speak truth. Speak truth that builds up, not tears down. Revelations 2.10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do not fear. What? Oh, <laughs> yeah, what? Do not fear. How do we do that? Do not fear suffering. Do not fear man. Fear God. And we're going to unpack how and what fear of God looks like. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read Matthew 24 through 31 because I've already read it. You are more valuable than sparrows, right? God knows you. He can destroy both body and soul and hell, but he knows you. He knows the number of hairs on your head, right? Right? That's that context. Elliot, can you jump that scripture slide just to the next uh, point slide, please? You, you could just there we, oh, go back one. Thank you. So fear uh, one more. Oh, okay. Never mind. We're good. Let me click. Let me click. There it is. Okay. Fear not, therefore. You are more valuable than sparrows. Okay? Fear not. Trials, what do they do? They test 
faith. Trials test faith. Okay? Which brings maturity. It grows you up. What son is not disciplined by his father? God disciplines those whom he loves. And I, this discipline, I, I just really, because I know some of you are like, oh, God hates me and he's punitive and he's just punishing me. And No, the discipline there, that word is not uh, against you. It's for you. It's formative. It's forming you. Okay? And it doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Though we've all done things wrong. Because he even uses what we've done wrong to discipline us. Okay? It just could be because he is shaping you and forming you. And you live in a broken world. And he's using that in you to bring what? What's it say? Maturity in Christ. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We know this passage, don't we? Right? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Right? And if we allow that all to go, we come perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm just running out of time. So why 10 days of tribulation? Why 10 days of tribulation? Good question. I don't know. No. <laughs> I have an idea. Okay? Well, uh, Genesis uh, 2455 says, uh, Laban... Uh, and her mother, and well, what was her name? Sarah, no. Isaac's wife. Rebecca, there we go. Uh, Rebecca's brother Laban and uh, Rebecca's mother said, let the young woman remain with us while at least 10 days after she may go. So just a little bit of time, 10 days, right? Genesis, uh, Daniel one twelve says, test your servants for 10 days let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. The guy in charge said, listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So, not conclusive, but possibly 10 is probably symbolizing a brief period of time. And I want you to take this away from this. Your trials that you're going through. Your affliction that you have is not forever. It's not forever. Forever is new heaven and new earth with Jesus. The trial that you are in is not forever. <laughs> this, praise the Lord, is not forever. It's brief. It's brief. It's not forever. It could also mean 10 literal days. But uh, being that Polycarp is being martyred 75 years later, maybe it had a brief and then a break and then more. I don't know. But, but I know that it's not forever. Right? Faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. I think I forgot to highlight, and I think you have something to fill in there. Maybe not. I don't know. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, because I know we sometimes struggle. Well, what if I'm not faithful unto death? What if, I, what if I don't go through? What if I can't be Polycarp and say, don't bind me because I am a holy sacrifice to my God and that I am proclaiming the gospel? What if I can't do that? 
And I have this verse for you. No temptation, no trial, no test has overtaken you that is not faced by others. Everybody faces the same test in different ways. And God is, who is faithful? God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to bear, but with the trial will also provide a way out so that you may be able to be faithful. Endure it. God is faithful, and he will make it so that you can endure it. And for Polycarp, his way of escape was eternity. <laughs> for you, depending on what it is, it may just be a period of time. It may be a solution from the doctors. It may be setting up some boundaries. It could be many things, right? When we're in the thing and in the trial, we need to look to who? God. For he is faithful. And we're tempted to look at all the trial, aren't we? And then despair. But God is faithful. So he who is faithful unto death will receive the crown of life. And James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen? So what is this crown of life? It, in simple terms, is resurrection to life. Resurrection to life. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives on us and will give lives to our mortal bodies. Death is not the end. Death is the beginning. Trials are to shape us. Trials are to form us. So, does the fear of God have anything to do with the crown of life? Remember? Well, back up in the verse 1, it says, do not fear. Fear God. And now he's talking about a promise of the crown of life. So where does this come from? Is there a connection? Could it be that he's just throwing crown in there because he's thinking of the, the Greek uh, award for the Olympic for the games? They would wear a laurel crown, perhaps. I mean, it could mean that. But John is walking out of the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and, and, and this is the book that he's using for his Bible, his Old Testament. And I, I want you to think about this. Proverbs 9.10, we're all familiar with this verse. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, Sirach, through in 300 B.C., uh, used by, all, by the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Western Orthodox Church, several churches, uh, was used by all Christians until the Reformation, okay? When the Reformation happened, we had this thing called Sola Scriptura, and we eliminated all the apocryphal and pseudepigraphical books from all Bibles. And though Luther said they're profitable for ex exhortation and insight into spiritual things, he did not think they're inspired, and I don't think they're inspired, but they have fell out of use. And yet, when you do a search, it's interesting. In Sirach 111, it says, The fear of Yahweh is glory and exaltation and gladness and a crown. A what? A crown of rejoicing. The fear of Yahweh is a crown. A crown of wisdom. 
making peace and life, perfect health. Isn't that cool? So John is drawing, in my opinion, on this imagery more than on the Greek imagery. So do not fear man, but fear God. Do not fear man, but fear God. For the lost, the fear of God is terror. It's two sides of a coin. If you don't know Jesus, judgment is coming. For the saved, it's reverence and awe full of love and a crown of life. If you know Jesus, the fear of God is a good thing, something you pour into. If you don't know Jesus, the fear of God is something that turns you to Jesus because the judgment of hell, eternal damnation in the pit of the lake of fire is for you. So choose life. Choose Jesus. Confess Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. First John 4, 15, whoever confesses Jesus is the son of God and God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because he, as he is, so also are we in this world. We're his representation. He's made us holy. He's made us saints. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, judgment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love. Because he first loved us. You were struggling with fear? Then focus on the fear of God in reverence and awe, full of love for him. That's what you need to focus on if you're struggling with the other fear. If you're feel, struggling with the fear of man, you need to fo focus on the fear of God. If you're struggling with the fear of God in a negative and terrible way, you need to focus on his love and his in reverence and awe. Does that make sense? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hear, hear Jesus' words spoken by the Spirit. Hear them, obey them, act on them, be encouraged, find hope in Jesus. We are more than conquerors in God's love, right? And, and I read this passage last Sunday, um, Romans 8, 35 through 37. I think it fits very well here today. Who shall, can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things, we are more than 
conquer through him who loved us. Who do we conquer with? Whose love? God's love. And it's his love, not our love, right? The fear of God, reverence and awe, full of love. The second death is is a condemnation to hell, which is Gehenna, the lake of fire, okay? That's the term that would define hell in scripture, Gehenna and the lake of fire. Our translations make it confusing because they use hell in inappropriate places, okay? And then they put a little number by it. So watch. When you see hell, watch for that number because sometimes they're translating it wrong. Okay? Hell is the final destination of all. Okay? Hell is empty. There's nobody there because the day of judgment has not happened. Praise God. Where is hope? Church, where is hope? How do we process our trials? We find hope in Jesus through the cross, through the resurrection. And we process our trials with him for he knows us, right? He knows me. He knows you. He knows your afflictions. He knows your poverty. He knows you've been slandered. He knows and he is walking in it all. He is. So fear him for it brings the crown of life. That resurrection power in your life. Let us pray. Father God, we just praise you and we thank you for your goodness and for your love. We thank you for hope in the midst of persecution. That no affliction happens to us. That you are not walking for our good and for your glory. May we find ourselves a pleasing living sacrifice presented to you. Which is our reasonable act. Of service, And may we live in the fear of God, reverence and awe, full of love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.